From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. For most part of a century, the region including North Africa and large swaths of West Africa all came under one and the same flag, the red, white, and blue of French colonial empire. Following the loss of Louisiana in the early 19th century, which at the time encompassed about one-third of what we know today as the United States of America, and partly to compensate for that tremendous loss, France began colonizing large swaths of North Africa and West and Central Africa, bringing under its rule close to a third of the continent's total area. 200 years later, more than half a century after its former colonies regained their independence, France is struggling to deal with its problematic legacy in that part of the world, finding itself embroiled once again in a bloody conflict 6,000 kilometers from home that shows no sign of resolving itself. Operation Barkhane, launched in 2014 by then-President France Hollande, ostensibly to restore order in Mali and protect France from the consequences of -of out-of-control terrorism south of the border, has become a major strategic embarrassment, the one undisputed master of that land and is proving a costly challenge to a now mid-sized world power that is no longer able to spread its wings as far as it once did. Against that backdrop, locally, the Malian state has to date proven incapable of asserting its authority over large areas of its own territory, and this power vacuum has caused serious problem for Mali's neighbors, including its neighbors to the north, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, and Libya, and turning the area known as the Sahel into an incubator for terrorism and insurrectionist movements of all stripes. Khalil Bendib spoke with Professor Bruno Charbono at the Royal Military College, St. John, about the recent developments in Mali and how this thorny situation is affecting the Maghreb, France, and neighboring areas of West Africa. Bruno, first, can you please give us a brief summary of France's official military involvement in the Sahel region within the past few years? That is, the, when, when we say Sahel, it's the region that's usually included in sub-Saharan countries, but they're the ones bordering the Maghreb to the south, Mali, Niger, Chad, Mauritania. What explains the French army's presence there over half a century after decolonization? Yes, well, everything begins with the Malian conflict in 2012. So basically in January 2012, we have rebel groups and some of them are extremist groups take over northern parts of the uh, of the country then there's a military coup in march 2012 in bamako in the capital of mali so the the situation in mali well is uh, uncertain and unstable and throughout 2012 the international community is basically arguing about whether or not to intervene or how to intervene and so on and so forth. And after the UN Security Council passes a resolution in December, some of those armed groups in the north start moving down south towards Mopti, which is in the center of 
of uh, the country. The French interpret this as a threat to the capital in the south, Bamako, and decide to intervene uh, a few weeks later in January 2013. And so from that point on, basically, France has been involved militarily in that crisis that has expanded to the region. The original military operation called Serval uh, was meant to be a short-term affair. It was supposed to be a bridge between the French intervention and uh, UN peacekeepers so that uh, Malians uh, could, uh, I guess, find a way to reconcile and, and find a way out of that of that conflict. It didn't happen that way, obviously. And uh, back in the summer of 2014, the French decided to transform that military operation into what is now known as Operation Barkhane, which is a regional military operation that covers what, have you, as you've said, the G5 Sahel countries, mainly in Mali. They still mainly operate in Mali, but with some operations in Niger, Burkina Faso, Mauritania, and uh, Chad. So the French operation has its roots in that conflict in 2012 and has now expanded to those five countries. So what was the official motive for France to step into this area that it had ruled for a long time prior to independence. Yes, well, what allowed the French to intervene is, is the history you're referring to, right? The French have never uh, left uh, Francophone Africa uh, since independence in 1960. So they have these network of military bases and these relationship with different African regimes. So that allows them to, to respond uh, rather quickly, probably even more quickly when it comes to Francophone Africa and the Americans could have ever done back then. So the official reason was back in January 2013 was the threat to the capital, as I was saying. So President Hollande back then, French President François Hollande, was arguing that it was a threat to the territorial integrity and the sovereignty of the state of Mali, and to some extent a threat also to regional stability and even potentially to Europe in terms of the effects of that conflict, what sort of illicit flows like illegal migrants or refugees or illegal goods that could go to Europe. So, so that was the key ultimate reason. The mission was basically defined as one of contribution to the global war on terror. So that was the French focus. It was more complicated than that. The conflict is more complicated than that. But the French limited its mission and justification for its involvement around that uh, rationale that it was fighting terrorism in the Sahel. When we talk about the Sahel, can you give us a brief description of that region? It's not quite the Sahara anymore. Tell us a little bit what those countries have in common. They're called in Arabic the Sahel. Yes, even defining the Sahel is uh, debatable. Uh, people have different understanding and different descriptions to what the Sahel may, means. Uh, the way I use it is the political definition of it, which is the G5 Sahel, the five countries I listed earlier. I think actually within that group, the three core groups, three core countries are Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. It is in that what the people call tri-border area between the three countries where most of the problems and violence occur and happen. And I guess what they have in common is uh, quite a few things. I mean, uh, definitely they're all ex-colonies of France that were became independent in 1960. Uh, their states have evolved in different ways, but 
to some extent what, what they have in common, for instance, is the difficulty in, I guess, having their authority respected or uh, providing services in and the regions of their country, so outside the capital or outside the big cities, uh, and especially around that tri-border area, the state, whether it's Mali, Nigeria, and Burkina Bay, have very limited, uh, very limited presence, and that I think can be explained by that history, that common history of, of states that were coming out of colonial France of the French Empire in 1960, with limited resources, limited human resources and expertise and that were able to somehow build the state, but one that was often reliant, especially in the case of Mali, on external aid. So what we had uh, even before 2012 in Mali was a state that became dependent, partly by choice, partly because they had other options were unavailable, a state that relied a lot on international NGOs, for instance, on international donors to fund particular and specific state services. So NGOs, international actors basically became proxies in a way for state or for providing state services outside the capital and in the far regions of the state. So so when you have a conflict that explodes like in 2000 or starts in 2012, well, the state uh, was said to have disappeared or disintegrated, but the fact is that it was already not really present or strong in those regions and it, as it was using international proxies, but also local proxies. So the, the Malian army, for instance, had a limited presence in northern regions of Mali because the state partly also used local armed groups as proxies for the state. But when those local armed groups rebel against that state, obviously it leads to the situation we have right now where instead of representing the state, they're fighting the state. In Niger, they, they had a, a better way or a better I guess history, well, they went through a few conflicts of their own in the 1990s, but they managed to solve it and to integrate, in many ways, the complaints of uh, several, of, uh, especially Tuareg populations in northern Niger. In Burkina Faso, well, the issue with Burkina Faso, the more, the more immediate issue was probably that they were, they have been coming out of uh, or, or trying to recover from coups that uh, toppled Blaise Compare, who had been in power for almost 30 years back in, uh, so the, so that happened in 2014-15, so, so they were not prepared, certainly, or trying, like I said, to recover from that coup, from that transition, uh, when armed groups started moving south and moving to Burkina Faso in the north. So military speaking, in terms of security apparatus of these states, they're always been dependent on either international actors and proxies, uh, local militias or local armed groups and so on and so forth. And so that partly explains the situation right now. After being beaten back in Algeria's civil war in the 1990s, several terrorist groups uh, originating in Algeria regrouped south of Algeria in the Sahel. It's a desert region or desertic region that is basically impossible for any nation's military to completely control. Can you give us a brief summary of the presence of Al-Qaeda and other terror groups in that region and how that's contributed to France intervening in the area? Yes, you're right. Um, some Algerian groups move in the northern regions of Mali and started becoming influent, I would say, around 
2000, between 2006 and 2008. So Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb uh, was that group that had that experience and uh, were bringing their experience and their networks from the Algerian civil war into Northern Mali. But that group integrated over the years into uh, local population and built uh, links in relationship with, with for instance, Aggeli, who's a, a Tuareg nationalist from Mali, who had even been a minister and part of the government in the 1990s. So to go back even before that, I would say that Mali, one must know that it, uh, back in 2012, that was the Fort Rebellion, basically. Uh, so we have one in 1963, uh, 1990, then 2006, and then 2012. And the difference between all of them, or the difference in 2012, is how Tuareg and the rebellion in North Mali integrates or is involved with these groups, especially Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, but also Mujahideen, for instance, which is another Al-Qaeda-affiliated group back then. And so so that's the key difference in 2012. You have like uh, this nationalist MNLA group that starts a rebellion, but you also have their fighting at the beginning side by side with Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. But then in the summer of 2012, once the Malian army is kicked out, these groups uh, diverge and the extremists uh, win over the territory in MNLA, basically loses that war. And so that was the early, if you will, uh, part of that story. What happens after that, you have fragmentation of certain of those groups that then bring or build a coalition or agree to a coalition in 2017. So I'm skipping a few years here for the sake of the argument. But basically in Mali, what we have in 2017 is a coalition named uh, JNIM under the leadership of Ayagag Gali, who is that nationalist Tuareg from earlier Malian wars. Uh, some people suspect that he, he lives actually in this in southern region of Algeria, which is another issue. But within Mali, you have a coalition now of these groups, people who are very much interested in what's going on within Mali, not so much about, I guess, the global sort of ideological war of Al-Qaeda, but are really much integrated within local dynamics. But at around more or less the same time of a couple, maybe a year or two later, you have the Islamic State of Greater Sahara that appears in the East uh, that comes out of groups from well, originally they were part of Mujayo. They they transformed themselves into other an, another group and then formed the Islamic State of the Greater Sahara that was recognized by the uh, Islamic State in 2016. So so they give allegiance to the uh, Islamic State in 2015, which is recognized in 2016. And so for a few years, you have these two main groups that will occupy the field, if you will, and they have different objectives. The Islamic State is probably the the most extremist group of the two, but the two will basically talk to each other for a while until a couple of years ago when the Islamic State started moving west into western Niger and Burkina Faso and trying to get into Malian territory. So basically encountering JNM territory. So they started fighting each other. And on top of that, the French identified the Islamic group in January 2020 as the core group to target with their military operations. So and right now the situation is basically JNM, it's more or less 
status quo. They, they certainly have great influence in northern regions, central regions, and they've expanded somewhat to the west uh, parts of Mali, while the Islamic State group has actually lost its leadership. The, the French have killed its leaders, al Sahawi back in, in August. So it's not quite clear what the state of that group, Islamic State in the greater Sahara, will be in the next few years, but they've taken uh, heavy losses in the last year. So both from the French and from their encounters and fighting with uh, the Jainin group. But I think beyond that, the key point that needs to be underlined here is how much the conflict has evolved way beyond the violence that these groups bring to Mali and Burkina Faso and Niger. The 10 years of conflict, almost now 10 years of conflict, have led to a very disastrous and tragic fragmentation of local communities. So right now what we're seeing, I think, which is even more troubling, and that started back, we were seeing signs of that in 2015 and 16, and and I suspect it became a topic of concern for the UN Security Council only in 2018, perhaps 17, 18, which is the fragmentation of local communities in central regions of Mali. And on top of that war on terror, if you want to call it that, you also have forms of very localized civil war dynamics going on in those regions where you have militias, civil uh, defense groups organizing and so on and so forth that contribute to the violence and the conflict. So it, it, it has become a very complicated conflict where sometimes disentangling all these groups is very difficult and it changes uh, quite quickly. They all talk to each other, alliances change and move, and it's not always sure how are clear how local communities, defense groups, militias work or don't work with the official extremist terrorist groups. Over the past few years, the French have known some setbacks in Mali. Many soldier lives were lost, and Operation Barkhane has been compared to America's failure in Afghanistan by detractors of French policy. They call it France's Afghanistan. And then in July, France announced that it will have its 5,000 troops in Mali by 2022. Is this comparison with Afghanistan, the U.S.'s Afghanistan problem, a fair comparison, or is that just too superficial? I mean, is this widely seen as a failure, this policy of intervention? by the French state, or is this something that had some tangible results for both the Africans and, and the French? Yes, that's a very interesting and tough question to answer. Well, first, the French are not leaving, just to be clear, though. They, they've announced a transformation of Bakhkan. So we'll see. I mean, I can expand on that if you want later on. But what we're looking at is a transformation of the French operation into a regional apparatus that will support regional troops. And so it's not a retreat per se. As to the comparison with Afghanistan, well, that's really interesting because I mean, I've been following this since the beginning, and even back in 2012, people were already making that argument or that comparison. It is Afghanistan. And then you had to, I guess, look at who was making those arguments to understand why they were making it, even before trying to figure out if it was a worthy or even 
necessary or probable comparison. And mostly back in 2012, whether it was in Canada, in the UK, or in general in other European countries, those who were making that comparisons were usually those who were against involvement, military engagement into Mali. So the argument was, well, well, look at how it's going in Afghanistan. The American, I can't make much headway. NATO has, has all sorts of issues there as well, and so on and so forth. It will be costly war. It could cost many lives, and so on and so forth. So may, people were making very quick assumptions about both conflicts being more or less the same thing, which was, I think, ever a big stretch, especially back in 2012. So those comparisons were used politically to basically say, we don't want to go into Mali. And then later on, especially starting, I would say, in 2017 and 18, when it becomes quite obvious that even though the French military has and still has a success in tactical terms, that is their military operations do target terrorists and they're pretty good at it. On the political and strategic level, the intervention is a big failure in the sense that it has led nowhere near any sort of conflict resolution, no matter how you define that resolution. I mean, the situation, security situation has just worsened every year since the French have intervened. You can read the UN reports on the general situation, security situation in Mali, and every year they say that the situation is getting worse. So from a strategic perspective, it is a big failure. And I suspect that is largely one of the reasons, that the, probably the biggest, most important reason why the French are transforming Barkhane. And so the comparison with Afghanistan right now are, are about that. Are the French stuck in the Sahel, like the Americans were for 20 years, uh, will they be here for 20, 30 years? And to some extent, it's obviously an argument that has little to say about what's actually going on on the ground. It's more about the French investment and French risks and European risk as well, because the European Union, I think, is very important in that discussion. But the French have always been in Africa and have always said also since uh, 2013 that they were there for at least 20, 25 years anyway. So I think you need to ask the question, who's making those comparisons for what purpose? And that's when I can answer that question. And usually those who make those comparisons are those who say, well, we need either to get out or we need a new strategy. Because if I can put my academic ad on, when you compare those two conflicts, you see the differences. You don't see the similarities. You see the big differences. The Malian state is not the Afghan state. The groups are not the same groups. The dynamics are not the same. The territory is not the same. The region is not the same. The great powers interested in that conflict are not the same and so on and so forth. So it's very, very different in that sense. Although one thing that probably needs to be said also about that comparison is how especially European military center troops that were coming back from Afghanistan to Mali. So I think that also fed into that sort of comparison that people were making. I've met several military officers within MINUSMA, the, the UN mission in Mali, for instance, telling me about Afghanistan and how they should apply the same practices or doctrine or strategy in Mali. So they were coming back from Afghanistan and applying the, what they thought were the lessons to be learned from Afghanistan into the Malian conflict. So I think that sort of, if you will, 
knowledge transfer between conflict is partly responsible for those uh, comparisons that are being made right now. And to some extent, these comparisons are useful to understand what's going on. But the way I've seen it on the ground, certainly, it's usually just about, well, what we did over there, we should do it here instead of actually trying to understand the conflict, which I, I think was counterproductive in many ways because mostly it was all about counter-terrorists, how we counter Talibans, and therefore we should counter terrorist groups in this island, this way in particular, and so on and so forth. So very militarized, if you will, approach to that comparison. And that is Professor Bruno Charbonneau speaking with Khalil Bendib about the recent developments in Mali and how the situation is affecting the Maghreb, France, and neighboring areas of West Africa. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Interesting and ironic twist of fate after a bloody war of independence between the two countries that led to what Algerians call a genocide and the wounds of that conflict still partly unhealed. Algeria's military and the French military agreed to collaborate in this anti-terror campaign led by France in the area south of Algeria. Give us a snapshot of this military cooperation and what form it takes? That's a tough one because many scholars like me have asked that question and Algeria has not been totally transparent about its role in the conflict in Mali and the Sahel. But certainly there were tacit agreements or at least understanding about what Algeria could do or not do and would allow or not allow on its border, southern border. I think for Algeria, if you, we try to put ourselves in that seat uh, or in their shoes, as long as the conflict is on the other side of the border, they're happy with that. I mean, as long as they don't have to deal with the problems that they've had to deal with in the 90s and the, and the Civil War and, all, and, and the consequences of all that, I think to them, containing these groups in that fashion I think that was more or less the key objective for the Algerian government. So if that means cooperating to some extent with the French, with the UN and other actors interested in Malian and Salian conflict, that was okay. 
we know, I mean, that there's little proof, public proof, but obviously the, the border is very porous between Algeria and Mali, for instance. As I've said earlier, maybe Agheli, for instance, lives in, in southern Algeria, although that's not confirmed. It's only rumors. I certainly don't have access to that sort of information. But we can definitely say that Algeria has a, a national interest in keeping the country beyond its border, on the other side of its border. So I think that mainly explains why it has cooperated to some extent with the French. Remember also the neighborhood, you know, back in 2012 and 13 when everything starts, it's also basically the next day after the, the collapse of Libya, so the intervention in 2011 that had led to a regional destabilizations here. It's also just after the Arab Spring and so on and so forth. So I suspect that Algeria was very much in favor of, a, or if not in favor, solely tolerant to what it saw as a stabilizing force in the region so that destabilization would not spread further than Mali. So I think that's a calculus. And obviously for France, it's much easier to go to go over the Algerian airspace, but also the need at the very least some form of cooperation with Algeria to monitor those groups. And from what we know, I'm sure that there is some form of exchange of information, although to what extent, what are limits, that sort of exchange of information between secret services of government or military personnel that I do not know. Operation Barkhan did not happen in a vacuum. Post-colonial ties between the former colonial empire and the post-colonial independent states have been dubbed by many as France-Afrique, France-Africa, a term that is pregnant with echoes from the past, the colonial past. Tell us a little bit what is meant by that term and why it is no longer fashionable in official diplomacy. Yes, well, the, the term was actually coined by Ivorian President Félix Oufoua-Boigny, right after decolonization, I think I can't remember the exact year, but but he actually used it in a favorable way. It, to him, the relationship between Africa and France was very positive. He was actually a president that in the early and uh, mid-1950s was against decolonization. He thought that Francophone Africa needed French help French support, French resources to develop, and so on and so forth. So he turned around and became president in 1960 at decolonization when public opinion was in favor of decolonization. And then the term took, I guess, a pejorative, or people understand now is a pejorative term, because it has been used as a shortcut for pointing to all the these very close relationship and networks of African and French elites. So political first, for sure, in the 1960s, the old French government is basically making sure that it is not abandoning its empire, but transforming its imperial relationships so as to maintain a form of influence and access to those countries. And African regimes, and most of them anyway, see an advantage in that, in that they can rely on French support for regime survival to make sure that their regime survives. I mean, those, so French support benefited African regimes as well because they they basically assured or ensured their survival. 
So regime survival for many African regime dependent on French support, whether military, economic or political, or mixed usually of all of that. Uh, and those African regimes who were not in favor of being too close or wanted to be sovereign or develop their own way and find their own way were often toppled by either a coalition of other African elites with support of the French or directly from the French. And usually it was under the name or justification of fighting communism, because you have to remember the Cold War context of those days. So those networks and those relationships between African and French elites allowed them to prosper. I'll meant that France had obviously a big say in everything that had to do with African affairs. They could talk for Francophone Africa and the United Nations, for instance, so on and so forth. But through time, those relationships and structures and networks have evolved, I think. And in the 21st century, well, there are remains of that, that there are definitely infrastructures or structures and power relations, I think, that come out. There is a legacy, in other words, or legacies, I should say, of those relationships and structures. But I doubt I'm one who's skeptical of uh, going too quickly into that sort of explanation. It's all about France-Afrique that explains somehow everything. It has become much more complicated in the sense that, for instance, in economic terms, France has retreated from Africa starting in the 1990s and with the creation of European Union, most of African businesses have turned to Eastern Europe, for instance. Politically, the old political French elite have not known colonial Africa. So Sarkozy, for instance, President Nicolas Sarkozy was the first president who was not from that colonial time, if you will. So you have that generational turn as well that you see both in France and Africa. And I could go on and on about how it has changed. Having said that, there are definitely legacies, like I said. I think the two key ones that explain why the French still have much influence are one, the structure or the network of military bases that they have on the African continent. So you still have on the permanent basis, approximately 10,000 French troops on the continent every uh, year. So whether they are on permanent basis as troops deployed, uh, sovereign troops as they call them, or troops deployed in, in the context of military cooperation accord, or in the context of operation like Operation Barkhane in the Sahel. So you have, always have 10,000 troops or approximately. That means that the French military is always involved in whatever politics of conflict management resolution on the African continent, and that even translates into French influence at the United Nations. The UN Security Council, for instance, expects France to do something, to be responsible, if I can put it that way, for Francophone Africa. So it gives that sort of influence. The other side of that coin is that African regimes, African states also expect France to do something. So to use the example of Mali again in 2012, I think that part of the explanation for how slowly African actors international community reacts to the conflict in Mali, it takes over a year, it actually takes a unilateral decision of French intervene in January 2013 to get the thing going. I think part of the explanation for, for that slow process is that everyone expects the French to do something about it.
And the other pillar, I would say, of French influence is the France CFA. So basically, Francophone Africa still has a share, well, there are two versions, but basically share a currency that is pegged to the euro and is managed, whose value is managed by the Banque de Paris, so the Paris Bank. So in essence, there is no monetary sovereignty for African states. It's all being done in Paris. There have been talks about reforming that system in the last few years, but still in, in economic terms, a lot depends on decision uh, in Paris. So, so that certainly is another place or location where you can find the French influence in very structural terms and very real terms that limit options for African regimes and societies. Into that economic void that you've just described for the French basically withdrawing economically from their ex-colonies, a number of competitors have moved in, China, Russia, now even India. Tell us a little bit more about this. Mali just purchased some Russian planes, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I wouldn't say it's a void, though. I mean, not all French companies got out of Africa. You still have big groups like Bollare, for instance, who uh, who are very influent and owns uh, strategic sectors. I mean, it it really varies from country to country. But if you go to a place like Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire, for instance, I mean, you see French companies everywhere. And they usually own strategic sectors like communication, water, power, uh, and so on and so forth. So they are still there. But you're right that there are many more competitors now or partners for African states and societies. The Chinese have certainly invested in different countries. Turkey is another one. Sometimes Israel, depending where you go as well. You mentioned Russia and Mali. Well, that's definitely a, a very interesting debate right now. Mali is, has, to some extent, been one of those countries that tried to get away from France when it became independent in the 1960s. So, so it declared itself a Marxist state that would work with the Soviet Union. And to some extent it did. Some military personnel, for instance, officers were trained by the Soviets, but they never closed the door totally on France. So they had a foot, if you will, in both camps. And so they play with that narrative, I think, right now, the, the current government which is a government that toppled the elected president last year. So so military government that now threatens to work with the Russian as a way to put pressure on the French, I think, as a way to, to angry the French, to make the French react. I mean, to some extent, obviously, because they have bought Russian military equipment, but the big story right now is that basically the government threatens to hire Russian private companies, the Wagner Group, to come in and protect the regime. So basically they're saying the French cannot protect Mali, cannot do its job properly, is abandoning Mali. That was the word of the prime minister. And it's all rhetoric, obviously. It's a form of populism, I would say. But the fact that they're calling on to Russia creates this sort of tension between Mali and France, obviously, because the French are not happy with that. And uh, no one really knows what would happen if the regime, the Malian regime, would indeed bring in some Russian private company to provide for security. That it's far from certain how the French would react. But the French are, are so ingrained or intertwined with 
pretty much everything that's going on in Mali, it's hard to imagine them actually pulling out, whether it's in terms of military terms, development terms, political, diplomatic terms, so on and so forth. They're just too big, in a sense, uh, to leave right now. But it does play internally to those who are oppose or are not happy with French involvement and engagement in Mali. So I think the government plays a bit of a nationalist card. I think it's a risky move uh, to bring in the Russian like that, because I, I don't see in any way form how a group of uh, private soldiers from Russia could solve the problems in Mali. In a recent dispute between the two presidents of France and Algeria, the Algerians, out of spite, decided to cut off closing their airspace to French airplanes on their way to Mali. How is this whole operation, Barkhine, eight, nine years later, what has it translated into in terms of the Maghreb's security? I mean, we saw how both Algeria and Tunisia at different times were directly impacted by some interventions by terror groups coming back from the Sahel and selling weapons, those weapons coming through Libya. That whole situation, it's an obvious threat to the four countries to the north, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, and Libya. Does this Operation Barakan come out as a relative success or a complete failure in terms of the general security of those countries to the north? How does it play out in terms of uh, that larger picture? Well, I think... One of the worries that was around for a long time was that the situation in Mali would indeed expand to the region and then all the way to Europe. So far, it has not been the case. If it has expanded, it is towards neighboring countries like Burkina Faso and Niger and towards the West African coast to some extent. Somehow, the countries in North Africa have avoided that sort of issue. Libya is its own thing that I wouldn't try to explain because I'm not an expert of Libya. But when it comes to Barkhane and the conflict in Mali, I think the, the one thing that we witnessed and observed and could see was actually a diplomatic struggle between Morocco and Algeria. So as you probably know, both countries have tense uh, relationship and often compete on the international stage. So what we've seen is uh, often independent initiative from Algeria and then Morocco replying with one of its own and vice versa in a way that had, I think, very limited impact on the actual situation on the ground for Malians, for instance. Certainly one key question that was asked, I think, and was very important but never quite answered was why is Algeria not a member of the G5 Sahel? So when they created the organization G5 Sahel, it did not include Algeria, even though it shares like a 1500 kilometer border with Mali, and it also did not include Senegal, which I think might have been included, but certainly Algeria being having the role that we discussed earlier where groups move between northern Mali and Algeria it was certainly, I think, a relevant question to ask. And that's where you'll partly find the answer to your question. Why is, is northern Africa so far anyway avoiding the spread of that violence in the Sahel? That's, 
I think partly because they've avoided of always making sure anyway that they would stay on that side of the border on this on the other side of the Algerian border. And that's why you have, I think, an Algerian government that has always been prudent in its uh, approach with the French and the UN. And they got involved in the peace process uh, and the peace agreement of 2015, but probably not to the extent that many people wanted them to be. And that's the key player in Algeria. The last question I'd like to ask yeah. you is circle back to North Mali. Now that the impending departure of half of the French troops is happening, it seems to be creating a certain fear among those in Timbuktu and that area who have yearned for the city to regain its status as popular international tourist destination. Tell us briefly, again, what the results, the tangible results may have been or not not have come to fruition for that part of Mali that had been sort of uh, abandoned by the Malian state. Well, if we think uh, and look at the current situation and try to think about the future, um, I admit I'm not an optimist about what the future holds for the region, certainly in Mali. What we can observe right now is basically a situation where in the northern uh, regions of Mali, so everything north of Mopti, for instance, or approximately, um, this Malian state has no hold and basically no authority and barely any presence. So so it's a, another form of governance, uh, governance of rebel movements and groups, JNIM in particular, but also to some extent signatory groups of the peace agreement. So Gadia, for instance, CMA, MSA, other other groups like that that control their own region or on Gao, Minaka, Kidal, and so on and so forth. Same thing for Timbuktu. So you have a very fragmented, if you will, sort of governance in the north of Mali and one that's in many ways fragile and can be, not always, but can be very violent, although that violence has stabilized uh, since 2017 to some extent at least. And so I, I think what the French are doing right now is realizing that they can't have much of an impact anymore on the overall or the big picture on the overall situation. So what the plan is, is to retreat to some extent, to re retreat to a regional perspective. So they're retreating to Côte d'Ivoire and Senegal, basically. And who will take over? Uh, I think it's one way of sharing risk with the Europeans. What they're doing is they will push the Malian army and the Nigerian army and the Burkina Bay army to get their act together in many ways, but support them with ISR assets, intelligence uh, surveillance and, and reconnaissance assets. So, so drones basically send in the Takuba force. The Takuba force is mainly a bunch of special forces from the French, but also almost 10 other European countries that will accompany Malian forces on the ground. So in other words, you'll have national armies, the G5 joint force supported by the Takuba force on the ground fighting the groups that need to be fight, fought and supported from the air with ISR assets, with drones by the French who are themselves supported by Americans. So in other words, I think the French posture is moving one, is one moving away a bit from engaging with 
ground troops to what experts call remote warfare. So not unlike what the Americans done under Obama, since Obama in terms of, of their fight against terrorism, globally speaking. To what extent, in other words, the French are building a coalition or transforming Barkhane into a coalition of military assets of different national armies, both European and African, remains to be seen. But certainly I think they're taking a step back saying, well, we shouldn't always be and should not be the first uh, to fight on the ground all the time. We can't do this anymore. So I think they're they're trying to build that sort of coalition between Europeans and Africans to, to continue that fight. And so if one uh, believes that this will change security situation, I could answer your question by saying, yes, we'll see some progress. But I, I don't see how that will in any way or form, I think, change the security situation in the near future. I think what we need uh, right now is first and foremost to stabilize not so much the north where uh, we have these uh, terrorist armed groups and other signatory armed groups, but to deal with the fragmentation that we see in the center and spreading to Burkina Faso, for instance. So the communal, intercommunal conflicts, if you will, or these elements of civil wars, because this can get out of control very, very quickly. And so a situation like that, you need UN peacekeepers, competent UN mission that is followed up, a state that actually wants to get involved in solving the conflict and not just fighting its own populace. And we're, I don't think we're quite there yet. Partly, I think the French gamble is to uh, retreat as a way to put more pressure on the Sahelian states to actually do something about the conflict and not have the French do everything, which is, I might be summarizing a very complex situation right now, but, but I think that's the, the, the big picture. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Charbonneau, for this very insightful uh, discussion. It's certainly a crash course for our listeners and myself. We usually limit ourselves to the matter, but I thought for a change we might look just quickly, have a glance at what happens a little bit south of our usual bailiwick. I want to thank you very much for, for taking the time. It's very much appreciated, and I hope and have more discussions yes. in the future. It'll be my pleasure to, to have that conversation or discussion again. Charbonneau is Professor of International Studies and Director of the Center for Security and Crisis Governance at the Royal Military College Saint-Jean in Quebec. He spoke with Khalil Bendib from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
here is the calendar of upcoming events in the Bay Area. On Friday, October 29th, Professor Khaled Mustafa Madani of McGill University will be speaking at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at UC Berkeley. His talk will focus on the latest developments in Sudan and informal networks in the Middle East and North Africa. This event will take place from 12 to 1.30 p.m. online via Zoom. For more information and how to register, please visit Center for Middle Eastern Studies at cmes.berkeley.edu. Simple as Water, a new documentary from Oscar winner Megan Mylon chronicles the impacts of war, separation, and displacement by taking us into Syrian families' quest for normalcy and through the whirlwind of obstacles to building a new life. The project was filmed in Turkey, Greece, Germany, Syria, and the U.S. over the course of five years, and it came to fruition through the joint efforts of a small crews scattered across the world. Many of those involved behind the scenes are Syrian refugees themselves. Simple as Water will be screened on November 6th in San Francisco International Film Festival doc series and on HBO on November 16th. For more information, please visit sffilm.org. And mark your calendar for this year's San Francisco Arab Film Festival, which kicks off November 18th, and it will run through November 24th in the Bay Area. The festival opens with Amira by Egyptian filmmaker Mohammed Diop at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. For more information and ticket reservation, please visit arabfilmfestival.org. This year's festival will be in person and virtual. If you need more information about these events, you can drop us a line at vomenaradio at gmail.com.
that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Thank you.